Blog Talk Radio. Carol the Coach. Sex, love, and relationships. We talk about it here. Carol the Coach. Compassion with contemporary relevance. I am a psychotherapist. I can be your personal life coach and I can help you with your issues. There are no problems too small or too big. You can talk about anything. Speaker, columnist, radio TV host, and commentator. Carol the Coach brings messages of wellness and empowerment within reach of everyday people every day. Almost five years ago, I lost my soulmate in an accident. He was killed in a plane crash. Life just for me has seemed to stop. There are groups all over the city. I mean, I teach one. It is a specific way to start thinking so that you shift how you see the world, which then shifts your energy, and then you feel better and you actually see things differently. Carol the Coach, always available to at carolthecoach.com. Now I've got Russell on the line. I'm 47 years old. I'm a truck driver. I'm married. I have a wife in San Francisco. Okay. I haven't been home in six months. My thing is, I I don't know if I have a sex addiction or what the problem is. Why do I want what I can't have? And as soon as I can have it, I don't want it anymore. You're right on target when you say, I don't know if I have a sexual addiction. Well, guess what? Yes, you do. And you know what? That's my specialty, Russell. So you're at the right place. Continue. I meet women online and and I'm in a different part of the country. I I travel all 48 states, so I love sex. I hear self-esteem issues. You never felt good enough and you didn't feel like you were getting what you should have then. And you're really reenacting that now. Do you want to change that about yourself? Oh, yeah. You know, that is such an important question because so many sex addicts have self-esteem issues. Now, I know you may be saying to yourself, well, do they have self-esteem issues prior to the development of their sex addiction. And to be real honest, we don't know. Um, What we do know is that many, many, many people grow up in unhealthy situations where they were not in any way, shape, or form encouraged or had their personality traits reinforced. And, And so they didn't know who they were and they didn't feel good about themselves. Did that lead itself to a propensity to medicate and self-soothe if they were feeling anger or sadness, embarrassment, humiliation, loneliness? Maybe. And then maybe they chose sex addiction to self-soothe. And then, of course, we all know that when somebody has difficulty controlling a behavior and it becomes problematic and they hide it and it becomes secret, that secrecy is at the foundation of sexual addiction. And that's why so oftentimes sex addicts will say, you know, we know we have a problem with lying. We had to lie to keep our sex addiction alive. And so we always say, hey, the first thing you have to practice is some rigorous honesty, and that can be very, very difficult if you're a sex addict in new recovery. Now, tonight I'm really excited because we are going to be talking about all sorts 
of issues around emotions. And I have Chris Countryman on, and he is a therapist that has studied emotions theory. And so he's going to be discussing all sorts of research that, you know, talks about the difficulty in managing emotions and how that does play a part in the development of sex addiction. And what you can do if you are a sex addict and you don't manage your emotions well, perhaps you suppress them. Um, you know, that is a term that says you, you keep them in. You tuck them away. Maybe you don't even know you have emotions. That's called repression. Or maybe, just maybe, you're so emotional about your sense of self and your behaviors that you can't practice emotion regulation. You, your anger is always at the front of your behavior. You know, for a lot of sex addicts that are volatile, I was just talking to one tonight, and he said that he knew that he needed to confess to his wife about his sexual addiction, not because he was caught, because his irritability was getting so out of control that he knew he could no longer live that way. He didn't want to snap at his wife. He didn't want to snap at the kids. He didn't like who he was. He didn't like the sexual addiction, but he really didn't like that that's not the person he wanted to show up to be in his family. And that in and of itself can be a real wake-up call. You know, I applauded him because most sex addicts don't like who they've become. They don't like their behavior. They don't like how they manage emotions. And they say, well, you know what? I'm going to stop this behavior and I'll get healthy. And then we all know that doesn't happen. Hey, I'm Carol Jurgensen Sheets, a.k.a. Carol the Coach, and I'm so glad to be with you tonight. Um, it is an honor and a privilege to get to talk with you, whether you're a sex addict, whether you're a partner, a betrayed partner, um, whether you're a family member. The more training I do, uh, because many of you know I train clinicians and coaches all over the world how to manage um, the clinical applications to help sex addicts and help betrayed partners recover. And we're getting more and more people who decided to get in this field because they are daughters and sons, husbands and wives, parents of sex addicts. And just like in the field of addiction in general, you know, you've got a lot of recovering alcoholics that decide they want to help alcoholics. And so they get into the field, they get the proper education, and uh, they make it their life's purpose. And that is so important. Uh, I don't expect everybody to do that, but it really is a wonderful attribute. When you take something that has been so dark and so difficult and you turn it around for good, I mean, isn't that what the 12 step is all about? Okay, I wanted to remind you 
many of you, and I've got to start, I've got to start sending out emails. I haven't done this at all. Many of you wanted to know when that online course was finished, and it is. So you can go to my website, Sex Help with Carol the Coach, learn about the online course, get a sample of me talking about what you can expect, and then order that sucker because guess what? November 24th, it um, increases in price. And so one of the nicest things about doing this show is that I get a lot of emails from people that say, Carol, I want to work with you. And unfortunately, I've gotten so busy that I, can, I can't handle the work. So I'm making these online courses like crazy so that you can at least get the information you would get from me for the first 10 weeks of working with me. And this online course is specifically on helping her heal, an empathy workbook for sex addicts to help their partners heal. And then currently I'm putting together for the partners of sex addicts the post-traumatic growth course. And that is to help partners to, to find the other side of partner betrayal and to feel good about themselves and to recognize their strengths. And so I'll let you know when that's out too. Now, you know, I have so much gratitude for what you all teach me. And what I know is that many of you Get out there and read everything you can get your hands on to understand this illness. And so we're going to be talking in the next couple of weeks about the recovery tasks. Those are the tasks that Patrick Carnes developed to help you recover. So I hope you'll stay tuned for that um, because it can be difficult to understand all the things that you need in your tool belt. And I know that. All right, so I had an email the other day, and it was from somebody who who said, Carol, I feel hopeless. I absolutely cannot stop my sex addiction. I've gone to meetings. I've been to counselors. I've read materials. I don't know what to do. I feel like there's no hope for me. Now, the truth of the matter is, you know, I have these 10 recovery tools that I really believe in. They're in that recovery course. But for some of you, that may not be enough. It may be that you need some medication, and that medication may be for something clinical like depression or anxiety or ADHD or bipolar depression. Or you may need um, a specific medication that interrupts that obsessive thinking. You know, when you say, I'm going to stop something, and the next minute your, your notion that you're going to stop it actually makes you want it more. That's obsessive compulsive thinking, and you may not qualify as having the disorder but you may have lots of the features, and there's medication that treats that specifically. And then last but not least, there is medication that can be helpful in treating urges and cravings. And so not every doctor knows about that, and you may want to get yourself to an addiction specialist 
because addiction specialists know what is healthy in the field of addictions to be able to give you. You know, if you're an addict, we really don't want to give you a tranquilizer. Why? Because you have a propensity for addiction. So why would we want to give you anything that was addictive? So I want you to Google addiction specialists. How about this? Addiction uh, medication providers in your area and see who comes up. And if you're just really having difficulty, that may be the next intervention. And last but not least, it may be that you need an intensive or, you know, a residential stay to really work on the long-term issues that are underneath the emotions that may be um, really at the forefront of your addiction. So we are going to be talking about that tonight. Now, as I indicated earlier, researchers have found that difficulty in managing emotions play a big part in the development of sex addiction and learning how to work with and integrate emotions is a big part of recovery. So I'm going to be speaking with Chris Countryman and we're going to be talking about emotions theory and how applying emotional tools can help in recovery. And it doesn't get better than that. Because you start out with the least intrusive. We know this in the mental health field. And then you just increase the kinds of help that you might need to be healthier. The important thing is never to give up hope. And utilize as many recovery tools as you can. And I know it may feel overwhelming at first, but if you get a solid schedule going, you know, you get up in the morning and you do your reading and you do some meditating, some praying or some journaling, it's a great way to start your day. And then you combine that with some exercise to physicalize all that energy that you may be uh, withholding and or suppressing and the next thing you know, you're feeling a little bit better. It isn't rocket science, but it does require a specialist. And when you get that specialist in your life, you will make, I mean, it's like getting a committee, as Patrick Karn says, that can really help you so that you're not reinventing the wheel. My um, guest tonight, Chris Countryman, is a licensed clinical social worker who's been in private practice and in the field of addictions for almost 30 years. Uh, And he's owned his own direct action counseling center for 17 of those years. He's published on the topic of Internet pornography addiction, and we are so thankful that he is here on the show tonight. So, Chris Countryman, welcome to Sex Help with Carol the Coach. Thanks, Carol. Yes, I appreciate you. Yeah, I so appreciate you being um, so gracious as to come back. I did not tell my listening audience this tonight that we had just scheduled a couple weeks ago and the entire studio went down for over 36 hours and the engineers were madly trying to put it back up. So I appreciate you taking your time and, and sharing such an important subject like emotions theory. 
Let me ask you, how did you find out about emotion theory? It actually was uh, very early on in, in some of my own therapy work. I had a, a therapist who presented me with some of the ideas of basic emotions. And um, from there, I just started to discover that there was a lot of research being done. And uh, it kind of expanded for me from there in terms of my own clinical practice, working both in my own life and, and then working with clients in a number of different areas to <clears throat> kind of broaden out and see the, get a comprehensive view of emotional theory and how it works with addictions. Yeah, so, so tell us, tell our listening audience, what is emotions theory? Well, broadly speaking, emotions theory is an umbrella term uh, referring to many different areas of research into emotions and then the application of that to treatment, to education, um, to just an understanding of what healthy mental functioning or emotional functioning is in general. Um, It's kind of an ironic thing. You know, we sort of date modern mental health to um, um, the work of Freud beginning in the mid-1890s, but it really wasn't until the um, mid-1990s that the field started studying emotions in a very broad, systematic way. There were occasional writings along the way in that almost 100 years, um, but it seems like the field of psychological and, and psychiatric research didn't really move into it until the 1990s. Okay, and so obviously you had someone who exposed you to that, and and why do you believe emotions theory is actually relevant to addictions in general? Well, I think it comes down to a basic question that I put out there to people, and that's basically why do people use addictive substances or do addictive behaviors? And, you know, I do this in group presentations, and I'll, I'll solicit answers from the audience, and inevitably when we take all those answers and boil them down, it comes simply to this. People use substances or do addictive behaviors to change the way they feel. Um, So what that immediately does then is challenge us to say, okay, they're doing a maladaptive behavior or using a substance in a way to help them get away from emotions or to suppress emotions or occasionally, as one of my clients likes to remind me, to feel emotions at all. But in every way you look at it, um, there's some attempt to change the way they feel. So... um, if we can help people deal with the issues that led to the intense emotions that they never faced uh, and then also help them learn constructive coping skills to deal with their emotions in the future, they're going to be able to function in life, in society much better um, without using substances. One of the worst things I think we can do is take a substance or an addictive behavior away from somebody and not give them tools to deal with those emotions that they've been trying to change. Oh, I, I, I would agree with you 100%. And so how do addicts, particularly sex addicts, mismanage their emotions? Well, I think 
a number of things, and none of this is going to come as a surprise to you as an experienced therapist and probably to most of your listeners either. Um, addicts will tend to ignore or repress or deny or project or amplify their emotions or, in oftentimes cases, blame them on other people. Um, and then, of course, when those strategies don't work to give relief, acting out or using uh, is a tool that gets them some kind of temporary relief from feeling these intense emotions. Now, of course, what's that do? Uh, it After the acting out, there's the shame, and now we've got the addictive cycle running. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of self-loathing and self-hatred behind that shame. Absolutely. Sure. And so then, that, of course, dealing with those emotions, of course, is part of what uh, any of us needs to do to stay uh, abstinent. Yeah, I was going to say, how, how do you believe that emotional engagement may play out in early recovery? Um, I think that emotional engagement is vital to, to even the first step. Um, so often when I um, see people uh, who are talking about being involved in saying, I'm going to do a first step inventory, they view it as an intellectual exercise. So they want to be very precise about exactly when they started this behavior and how many times they did that behavior and uh, how much money it cost them and things of that sort. Uh, and I would say that it's the purpose of a step one inventory is anything but an intellectual exercise. Its purpose, in fact, is to help a person, um, in a sense, um, precipitate an emotional crisis that, you know, what colloquially we would call hitting bottom. Because if you, they stay with that bottom, they will become spiritually and psychologically available to the kind of transformation that leads them to abstinence. Yeah, and so obviously that transformation, how would you describe that in general? Because a lot of our listening audience they're new to they're new to recovery. They're trying to figure out what recovery tools to use. They may not even have been exposed to the twelve step process. And so, how would you define transformation? Certainly, the I think the key element that that begins to happen is that um, first off, people feel strongly an emotional experience and it's powerful enough that it breaks down their psychological defenses. Again, the primary defenses of, of addicts, denial, minimization, projection, rationalization. When those defenses break down, uh, people feel very raw emotionally. Um, you know, I've had people talk to, use terms to describe it as, you know, feeling naked or stripped or, or beaten down. And while it's a very unpleasant state, um, from a psychological perspective, what can begin to happen is that they are now able to feel and, and engage with those emotions. So as I say to folks, it's sort of like your thinking and your feeling are now communicating again. From a spiritual perspective, the breakdown of those defenses um, 
allows a higher power to begin working in a person. And so what I tell people, uh, especially when I, when I talk about this in groups, I'll say, how many of you have been in this place before? And immediately all the hands will shoot up. It's not an unusual place for an addicted person to get because addiction leads to, to all kinds of crises, you know, both external and internal crises. The difference is, though, what, what people do is they tend to dislike the pain so much that they try to pick themselves up from that crisis, that bottom, if you want to call it that, and what they then encounter is the addiction ready to medicate those, that pain. I tell people, stay in the bottom, stay in that emotional crisis, and what you'll find is that the urge to act out, or in the case of substance users, to drink or drug or whatever, that urge is actually absent when they're in that bottom when they're feeling those raw emotions. That's that mm. benefit of, of, if you want to call it, intellectual and emotional communication with it. And from a spiritual perspective, that's when they become available to their higher power. And gradually, as people stay in that time, they seem to find themselves being rebuilt from that bottom without the addiction. That integration, mm-hmm. that beginning integration of intellect and emotion uh, is a powerful place to be rebuilt from or to begin rebuilding from. Well, and you know, I know that, and you and I know each other personally, and we share clients, and that is a hard concept for clients to want to do, to stay in that bottom. But I so understand what you're saying, because it's that bottom that will help to transform you. And you know, everybody wants to avoid the bottom, but really, when you stay there, then you figure out what you need to do to get healthier. So um, I love that you are a proponent of that. Now, what do, you, what do you tell them to do to manage their emotions while they're down there? Well, I don't tell them to manage them. What I tell them to do is to feel them, just to stay in okay. and say, look, you're going to feel really a good bit of pain, but it's not pain that's going to kill you. It's, it's pain that actually is the beginning of the healing. What I tell them is you need to feel this every day. And people look at me and say, well, how do I go to work? How do I relate to my family? I say, you need to feel it every day, but you don't need to feel it every minute of every day. You just need to engage with it for some part of every day. So people say, how do I do that? I say, look, sky's the limit. You can read poetry or read religious literature or sing songs or listen to country music or read poetry, uh, journal, doing whatever helps you engage with your emotions. Um, I've known people who've had various songs that really took them right there. Um, sometimes classical music, sometimes country music, sometimes rock and roll. It doesn't matter what it is. It's whatever helps you connect with that on a day-to-day basis. And the interesting thing that I find happens with that um, is that people start to notice that over the course of a few weeks to a few months, they're still engaging with those emotions, but the pain is lessening. And they're finding themselves 
beginning to function in new ways without the influence of the addictive obsession and the addictive compulsion. In other words, they're sort of being rebuilt out of that bottom without the without the influence of the addiction. Yeah, and I'm sure that then is evidence to them that they are able to feel the emotions and not be so devastated and not need to fuse them with numbing agents of any type. I mean, you've really fused it with things that would be helpful and healthy for them, music and journaling and prayer and meditation, that kind of stuff. Sure. And, of course, what we hope is a person is either in therapy or in a 12-step group or both so that they're not going through this alone, so that they're getting support, so that they're being with people who understand what they're going through and can offer them tools, um, you know, and again, you and I both do this in therapy quite a bit, giving people some real basic help in working with understanding and growing with the emotions that are quite natural, but for them are brand new. Well, yeah, and I do believe that you are really skilled at um, setting things up so that they experience success, even if it isn't as good as they would like it to be. You know, let's face it, that fake it till you make it slogan is based on sponsors telling their sponsees, just act as if you've got the confidence to do it. Just act as if you know how to do the resume. Just act as if you can get through the next hour. And, you know, Chris, one of the things that I recently heard one of your clients say is that you and I both know how important it is to have a community. Uh, you know, Patrick Carnes calls it the committee, but it is a community of people that keep you out of isolation because that's where addic- addiction is. And so sure. I had a client that said, yeah, my counselor wants me to make 10 calls a day. And my group groaned. And they go, 10 calls a day? And he goes, yeah. He wouldn't accept one, two, or three. And then another group member said, well, do you think he wants you to to try for 10 so that if you do three, you're meeting that daily minimum requirement? And they all really pondered that. Because you and I know that connection is really vital to also processing emotions. You know, the guys in the group or the community or in the 12-step community, they, they remind each other, hey, you will get through this, and I got through this, and you know, call me if you need me, that kind of thing. Sure. I think so often we we focus so much on the on on emotions as a part of our individual makeup that we forget that emotions are equally communal, that our emotions communicate so much to other people about ourselves. Um, and it's in shared emotions that our sense of connection, um, our sense of meaning, um, basics of any relationship are rooted in 
this identification between two people and an identification that isn't just, hey, we think alike, but we also have emotional connections. And of course, from there you go on to romantic relationships, families, extended families, um, different communities of identity. All of those sorts of things happen because at some level there's an emotional or an affective connection being made. Very good point. So then obviously, uh, you, you referenced it earlier, motion theory really can be a catalyst for a person's connection to their higher power. Can you explain yes. that more fully? Okay. Sure. Um, when people talk about connecting with their higher power, most often what I hear them speak of is they have a feeling of a sense of their higher power present in their lives. Um, in other words, it's an emotional experience. And since they've been covering up or avoiding or suppressing emotions for a long time, that um, developing awareness of their own emotions allows them to be open um, and accept those feelings uh, in that moment as something bigger than just themselves. Um, and so, you know, you start hearing the practices that are suggested, among other things, prayer and meditation. Okay, what do those do? Well, prayer oftentimes is about reaching out, calling out, speaking from the depths of ourselves and hope that something or someone in the universe hears us. And meditation is about quieting our minds down so much that our emotion, the flow of our emotions uh, is pretty much an automatic or a, um, a balancing factor, I would say. Okay. And so when you say a balancing factor, you mean it's in some ways kind of an equalizer. Right. It balances out the, the, the heavy thinking um, and allows a person the awarenesses, the, the types of awareness that we get through our emotions. Um, mm -hmm. That you know, I can, I can go in so many different directions with that, I'm kind of hesitating to think what, what to go. But basically, on an individual basis, what our emotions do uh, for us is very rapidly um, tells us how we are interpreting the events of our lives. You know, they're happening at a speed down in the range of uh, a few hundreds, a few thousands to a few hundreds of a second, which is faster than our cognition is able to interpret things. So, you know, we have these physical sensations we call emotions so fast that are, that are giving us very much life-saving information. You know, I don't want to have to walk out into the street and see a car coming towards me and, and have to do some kind of analysis to say, uh, I better get out of the way. I want that very rapid uh, physical, visceral response that is leading me to jump out of the way almost before I can even think, uh-oh, my life's in danger. So that speed is, is vital to it. And um, in using emotions here, as we talk about in recovery, um, we're, we're paying attention to those kind of signals. And we're following through with what they're leading us to do, which is ultimately life-saving survival, if you will, 
uh, kind of activities. You know, I can't help but think I'm, I'm going to digress for one second. Sure. In working with partners that both you and I do, partners of sex addicts, their brain has actually gone offline oftentimes, and their emotions in attempts to keep them safe get very dysregulated and they don't know the difference between truth and reality because their entire framework of truth has been shaken. Um, And so what would you tell a partner to do in terms of getting comfortable with their emotions? Well, in in the sense of getting comfortable, it's the same thing that I encourage addicted folks to do. Um, what I find partners are often doing is that they have stopped trusting their emotions. They've stopped trusting what they feel. Um, and sometimes they're looking to the person outside of them to tell them how they should understand the world. Um, but I think this is an experience I'm sure you've had with, with many partners. Um, you know, I thought I knew him and I thought I understood him and what he was all about, and then all of a sudden I find out that he's acting out sexually, and I doubted myself because I was so sure I knew what was going on here. And that self-doubt then leads them into this kind of downward spiral of doubting all of their emotions. Um, So they don't know when to be mad or how to express it. Um, They don't know if they should feel um, uh, afraid in a given situation. They... To use the old term, they stop being internally referenced. That means focusing inward and, and getting their reference points for life from within, and they start becoming externally referenced and start looking for clues from other people. Now, of course, the, the you know if you want to call it the hardcore codependents are people who've been that way their whole lives. They were educated to look outside themselves for signals about how they should feel and how they should understand the events that are going on around them. Well, and I do believe that makes sense. So I I suspect what I heard you say is that you would really work with a partner, again, to trust herself unless she has had that long-term childhood into adulthood codependency where she wasn't allowed to or she, for whatever reason, chose not to. So, again, well, you're asking people to be, okay. It, they would just be at different levels, I think, uh, of learning to uh, experience and trust their emotions. Um, yeah, it would, exactly. I, I think somebody who never got it um, would have a, have, well, and they do, they have a more basic level um, at which they need to to learn about their emotions and then learn to trust them. Uh, an older okay. a partner who's who had that going for them and lost it, uh, it's a lot easier to regain that self-trust. Mm-hmm. Yes, I would absolutely agree. So you, you spoke about it a little bit, you know, when you talked about what changes emotionally as a person progresses in recovery. But if I'm not mistaken, what you were saying is that they begin to tolerate their emotions and and 
understand that they're significant and they're telling them something. And instead of feeling their emotions, uh, they become comfortable with them. Yes. Over, over time, that's true. What I oftentimes mm-hmm. find is, is in the early steps of trying to get people to connect with their emotions, the first thing they do is think their emotions, which I'm fine with. It's, a, it's an early step. Um, so one of the things that I tell people when, when um, the tools I try to get folks to do this early on is, is just begin with awareness. Since our emotions are physical, physical sensations that we feel in our bodies, I just say, okay, if you want to know what, you, what emotions you're feeling, pay attention to your body. And there are times when people will say, I'm feeling this kind of a feeling in my chest or in my stomach or my hands or arms or legs or wherever. And we have to go through and kind of even figure out what emotion that is. They've been so disconnected from that. But once they say, oh, this feeling in my chest is, um, is anxiety, okay, then they've got it because they'll know the next time they have that same kind of feeling in their chest or their stomach or wherever, ah, oh, that's anxiety or that's sadness or that's guilt or whatever other emotion they may be having. And it's, it's a slow development of awareness. And sometimes it really is, okay, I'm thinking, what is this sensation in my body? Over time, they, they don't need the thinking to analyze it. They begin to feel it and, and make the connection directly that it's, again, the anxiety or the sadness or whatever else. And so, you know, I always talk about the five primary feelings, anger, sadness, loneliness, fear, and happiness. And then, of course, especially in addiction, you have shame and guilt, which are a different type of emotion as far as I'm concerned. What would you say some of the very basic emotions are? Well, I'm with you on um, four out of the five. Loneliness, I see, is a, is a form of sadness. And from the research that I've done, the uh-huh. guilt, shame, and actually I would add scorn in there, is the fifth category. It's the category of having to do with a sense of, of rejection, either of some, some trait or characteristic of self, which is shame, a rejection of one's actions, which is guilt, and then a rejection of someone else or someone else's actions, uh, which would be scorn. So that category, which um, some people call bad, and they, they take those emotions that you were listing and created a a kind of an easy-to-remember mnemonic, mad, sad, glad, bad, afraid, that bad category um, is the one where people, again, are feeling a lot of shame and guilt and then having to learn how to deal with those. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let's go over them one more time from your point of view. I've never heard – I do say the kid version is mad, sad, glad, afraid, and lonely – so you're saying it's mad, sad, glad, bad, and afraid, and bad encompasses shame, guilt, and scorn? Yes. It, it's all about rejection, whether it's rejection rejection because something or someone is, is outside of my standards or values. So it is qualitatively different than the other four 
in that while it is the other four really seem to be hardwired in um this they seem to be developmental not even developmental they they seem to be emotions that we have built into us um neurologically um the bad emotions shame guilt scorn uh seem to be built in but they're much more tempered or shaped by um the values that we learn so um you might do something and feel no guilt about it because of my upbringing, if I did the exact same thing, I might feel extremely guilty about it. Uh-huh. That would make sense also. Okay, yeah. so now I want to ask you, obviously, what does healthy emotional engagement look like, uh, especially in, A, a 12-step group or, or in a sponsorship relationship or other program activity like Men of the Battle or Braveheart sure. or whatever. Yeah. Sure. Um, engaging a group, um, oftentimes I can, I can tell if, if people are engaged emotionally in the group in that they will you'll, they'll move away from some of the stereotype behaviors that you see um, oftentimes in the movies where they're, maybe poking a little fun at a 12-step group. Things like um, excessive quoting of 12-step literature, especially like the big book. Um, the competing to tell the harshest war stories. And then the repetition of the same old stories. You know, yes, we've been hearing, you know, Joe B over there to tell this same story about when he was acting out or when he was in early recovery over and over again. They tend to move instead and grow into genuine intimacy and self-revelation. Um, the honesty is not just about the facts of their lives. It's also about the emotional truth that they're experiencing as well. What I find in sponsorship relationships um, is that there's an openness to the shared vulnerability um, that allows the sponsor to begin to trust another human being, oftentimes for the first time in their lives. Uh, you know, all too often sponsorship um, gets portrayed as, you know, the little dictator who's going to tell a person how to do everything in their lives. But when people are engaging with their emotions, sponsor and sponsee, there's much more of a mutuality to it. Um, and that develops genuine respect and openness. And as that develops, then um, the sponsee says, hey, I can trust this person. I can trust this person not just because they're an addict, but because they trust and respect me. And then in other program activities, whether it's other kinds of groups as men in the battle, or whether it's just even sort of the informal get-togethers for meals or coffee or whatever after the meeting, um, the groups tend to move past some of that empty teasing and jostling for status that you see in groups. Um, and there's a greater sense of hey, we're in this together. Um, we are, um, you know, in a sense beyond group, we're, we're sort of a family. And that's where, that's one of those very powerful things when I hear people say, my recovery group is my family, or I know, okay, this is where emotions are being expressed and being respected and being honored um, in, in a group setting. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. 
And of course, I really believe that when you're working on emotions and you're acknowledging them yourself and, and using your group or your community as a mirror to, to check in about your feelings, it provides a safety that people may never have had growing up. Right. Right. Okay, so you know, how can we cover I wish I had a nickel for every time some – I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no, no. You wish you had a nickel. I, th- I was saying I wish I had a nickel for every time somebody came back to me uh, after their first meeting and said, I can't believe people talk this openly about these things. Um, they're shocked to hear people being just naturally open and vulnerable and getting group support and affirmation and understanding and no judgment because these are the things Mm -hmm. often people judge themselves for just thought nobody should talk about those things well and you and I both know that when they start living that kind of experience I know I say this in our therapy groups all the time that um what you do in our group, you take outside to other parts of your own world. And so how can a recovering person's other relationships benefit from their employing emotion theory? Certainly. Um, if, if you, let's start with the relationship with a significant other, spouse, uh, boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever way those kind of relationships go. One of the right. things that you and I both know that you find with the partner is that that person is starved oftentimes for closeness and intimacy. Um, you know, and they, they don't mean sexual intimacy. I mean, just some kind of real connection with the inside of this person that they love and care about. And as I say to people, um, what is, what intimacy is, is, Revealing to someone what they can't know by any other means. So if I'm telling a person my thoughts and telling a person my emotions, that is intimacy. Intimacy is letting your partner know what's going on inside of you. So if I'm doing that, I begin to use what I'm learning in group, learning in therapy, learning in my 12-step group about expressing emotions and even being in connection with emotions, so I'm telling my, my my partner that, then the relationship has a chance to grow on that much deeper level, that much more intimate level. And my partner is saying, I don't know if I can, goes from saying, I don't know if I can stay with this person to, oh, this person's giving me what I've really always longed for. Um, and And the two people then can start to grow together in a much more open, and um, healthy way. Absolutely. And that's, that's a great way to describe it. So can you give us some basic emotional tools? You know, we've got about five minutes. So what are some basic emotions tools and that an individual can use today for their own growth? Certainly. The first, of course, we have to start off with is the, is the awareness. Uh, again, if I've spent years drinking or drugging or acting out to cover over my emotions, I don't even know what I'm feeling. I'm, I'm, I'm disconnected oftentimes from my body. Um, so the first thing is, is to begin paying attention 
to my body to to begin to identify these sensations and know what they're kind of connecting to um, in the events of my life. So I'm starting to say, okay, I've got this. Um, I'm gritting my teeth and my jaws are tight and my face is red. Oh, this must be anger. I must be really, really angry. Um, to just even be aware of that is sometimes uh, a slow process, especially because so many times in our society people are, are taught anger is bad. You shouldn't feel angry. So to to begin to connect with those physical sensations, um, mad, sad, glad, bad, afraid, is is something very new that takes time. The second tool I recommend is developing a vocabulary to express emotions. Um, according to some studies that have been, again, in the last few decades, um, there are about 2,000 words, 2,100 words in the English language that either name or convey emotions. Um, so very often, people don't have any of those words or have a very small or very limited vocabulary. Um, so one of the things I do with my clients very often when, when this is directed, I give them a list of about 75 words in the different categories, the mad, sad, glad, bad, afraid, to help them begin to put words to emotions because if you can begin to name it, you begin to get some power in working with it. Um, you know, I, I tell this quick story and I don't mind the words. I, this was a number of years ago. I was doing a group and said, okay, who wants to do some work? And we put all the chairs in a circle. And so one woman said, okay, I want to do something. And she, she said, came in, we put her in the chair and the middle and said, what do you want to work on? And she says, well, I want to deal with my feelings about my mother. And so I said, okay, find somebody in the group who kind of reminds you of your mother. And she called another woman out. So we put her in the chair. And I said, okay, now tell your mother here what you feel. And she she sputtered and sputtered and, and sputtered and, and, and finally said, you bitch. She couldn't even name her emotions. She didn't have a vocabulary for her emotions. She just went to name calling. Um, hope wow. that word doesn't offend any of your listeners, but that that thing of being able to articulate our emotions, to go from sensation to name, uh, is is the beginning of being able to then work with our emotions in a in a in a much more constructive way. The third thing I work on then is is finding expressions for emotions. Um, for most of us, I think that's probably doing it verbally and or in writing. But I also encourage people who are artistically or athletically inclined to find expression of their emotions through those endeavors as well. And then I find people who connect with and express their emotions through prayer or through nature or through any of a number of other ways um, that they can let their emotions come out and, and get some sense of fullness um, and and completion with them. And again, that takes us back to that whole experience of how to stay connected with the bottom. So often it's about feeling through music, through poetry, through sometimes through dance and movement, whatever helps you stay connected. Oh, yeah. 
Well, Chris, this has been enlightening, and I know our listening audience has really appreciated it, too. Let me just remind people that your website is directactioncounseling.com. And if yes. they have questions for you, they can go to that website, I, I, I would assume. And yes, I'm just so thankful that you were able to get back on. Well, I'm thankful for being on the show. It's good to talk with you. We haven't gotten together off on the side and talked mm-hmm. other than shop lately, so we need to do that. <laughs> yes, we do. I have to tell our listening audience, back when I was uh, in the process of of going through and becoming a CSAT, I met with Chris in a restaurant, and I was working for a big corporation, and he goes, Carol, why are you giving them all your money? You need to be in private practice. A year later, that I was. So thanks for uh, redirecting and guiding me too, Chris. You're most welcome. It was, I believe, when people have the kind of energy and dynamic knowledge of their field the way you do, get out where you can help the most people and, um, <laughs> you know, let other people work in the institutions. Well, I appreciate it. I always look for guidance, and so I appreciated yours. And, yes, let's get together soon. And, again, thanks for a great conversation. Thanks for having me on. Have a good night, everyone. You too. Bye-bye. So, again, I was speaking with Chris Countryman, who is based out of Indianapolis. His counseling agency is Direct Action Counseling. And i got to tell you, uh, this man knows what he's doing, and he has really worked diligently to help others do so, too. All right. That's it for me tonight. Um, thanks for being with us, and we will see you next week for Sex Help with Carol the Coach. And You know, there will only be one of you at all times, so fearlessly have the courage to be yourself. Make it a great week.